0: Good morning. Good morning. Hello. All right. Uh, I'm thrilled that everybody was able to make it despite all the drama and whatnot. Um, and I'm also glad that there are people who in our congregation who were without power until very recently who did finally get it. Um, I confess, I was not in the mood to lean too hard on beat, not that it necessarily would have mattered, but to lean too hard on them about fixing our little telephone pole. So unfortunately, when they did get to it yesterday afternoon, they managed to drop some other branches on it, bring the wire down. Uh, Thanks to our friends next door for letting us cut through. Um, We, uh, as you may remember, are in the book of Deuteronomy. We're drawing toward the end of our study of Torah, and uh, Torah being the first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy being the fifth of those. And uh, when we were last here together, we were looking at uh, the portion that starts uh, in, uh, in ver- toward the end of verse 7. And if you remember, we went through a little exercise where we looked at all the commands of things that God's people were called to do and to not do. Does this bring back any fond memories? Do I have this the right way up, by the way? Good. Good. <laughs> Uh, so uh, just uh, keep uh, look at that, and, and if you can decipher any of it, bear that in mind a little bit. Uh, Will, brother, you know the, if the the former div one basketball player is going to sit toward the front, he's going to have to slouch down a little bit so people can see around him. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. Sorry. <clears throat> uh, let me uh, let, let me start at the beginning of chapter eleven just to get us kind of back in the mood. Love Yahweh your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. Remember today that your children weren't the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of Yahweh your God, his majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, the signs he performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his whole country. What he did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots, how he overwhelmed them in the waters of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you, and how Yahweh brought lasting ruin on them. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the desert until you arrived at this place, and what he did to Dathan and to the sons of Eliab the Reubenite, when the earth opened its mouth right in the middle of all Israel and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that belonged to them. But it was your own eyes that saw all these great things Yahweh has done. So again, this happens so often when God is about to tell His people what they are to do and not do. He establishes the basis for which He's able to make these kinds of claims on them. You may remember, He said, that I saved you. You may also remember that not everybody was cooperating as they should have been. You may remember that the earth swallowed them up. So, don't mess with me. Observe, therefore, all the commands I'm giving you today, that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you may live long in the land that Yahweh swore to your forefathers to give to them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. The land you're entering to take over isn't like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. Incidentally, that may be a more polite translation than what the author is trying to convey, Uh, foot is often a euphemism in Hebrew for uh, actually the, close his ears, the male genitals, Um, uh, the premise there being that basically you, you uh, you only had enough land to grow your crops on that you could personally irrigate. But it's not like that, God said, where I'm leading you. The land you're crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from the heavens. It's a land that Yahweh your God cares for. The eyes of Yahweh your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love Yahweh your God and to serve Him with all your heart, with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rain, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil, I'll provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you'll eat and be satisfied. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then Yahweh's anger will burn against you, and he'll shut the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce. And you will soon perish from the good land Yahweh is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. You may have seen uh, our, our Jewish neighbors doing that when they pray—the binding, uh, phyl- they're called phylacteries on their on their head, uh, f- uh, their their foreheads and on their arms, wrapping them around. They're, they're in those little leather boxes, are are uh, uh, the commands written down? Usually, a version of the Ten Commandments written down, and they literally will bind them on when they pray. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit down at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Again, if you visited a Jewish home, they have a mezuzah on the doorway. It's funny, you go to a hotel in Israel, every single room has got a mezuzah right there as you're about to enter. And a devout Jew will kiss that as he enters. Thank you. So write them on the doorframes of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that Yahweh swore to give your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. And if you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow, to love Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to hold fast to him, then Yahweh will drive out all these nations before you. And you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the Euphrates River to the Western Sea. No man will be able to stand against you. And then Yahweh your God, as he promised you, will put the terror and fear of you on the whole land, wherever you go. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of Yahweh your God that I'm giving you today. The curse, if you disobey the commands of Yahweh your God and turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods which you haven't known. When Yahweh your God has brought you into the land you're entering to possess, you are to pl- proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. As you know, these mountains are across the Jordan, west of the road toward the setting sun near the great trees of Mori, in the territory of those Canaanites living in the Arabah near the vicinity of Gilgal. You are about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land Yahweh your God is giving you. When you have taken it over and are living there, be sure that you obey all the decrees and laws I'm setting before you today. So, again, just by way of review, where are God's people when these commands are given to them? What's that? Uh, yeah, they're the desert. They're on the verge of entering the promised land. They're on the east side of the Jordan, preparing to go west across the Jordan into the land that God's giving them. Right? Where were they before that? Well, but, but after Egypt, before that, they were in the desert. Forty years they wandered in the desert. God gave them his law. He commanded them to go and enter the land. They said, oh, It's scary. And God said, fine, you're going to wander in the desert. Like, no, 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 okay, all right, we'll do it. And God's like, don't do it. He said, no, no, we're going to do it now. They did it. They didn't didn't work very well for them. They got beat down, something fierce, 40 years wandering in the desert. And now finally, the last of that old generation, it seems, has, has died off, other than Caleb and Joshua and Moses. And they're getting ready to enter into the land. Now, what's the point of them living in the land? What's that? To be blessed blessed by God. Yeah, they're they're going to the land so that they can be blessed. And yes, Rick? And to be a blessing to others, right? How might they be a blessing to others while they're in the land? Yeah, right. So when, like, aliens come in on spaceships or just from other countries, yes. Well, yeah, so when other people come, for one thing, there are going to be people who are going to be strangers and aliens among them, and they're going to be treated well, right? That's part of the law is that they're supposed to be treated fairly. Uh, and they're also, simply because of God, where God is putting them, he is putting them in the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of Delaware, right? So you've got to go through there to get anywhere you want to go, and people are going to pass by, and they're going to see this nation that is prosperous, that's flourishing, where there's justice, where there's health, They're going to say, hey, what's the deal there? Well, these are people who worship Yahweh, the one true God of heaven and earth, right? That's part of it. And God is giving them a specific piece of real estate, isn't he? Right? In, In fact, in a number of places, he delineates where that land is, and he gives them the instructions as to what particular methods are to use by which to take that land. He says, you're going to take it gradually because there aren't enough of you to completely uh, settle all of it, but you're going to do that. And, and I'm giving you this law, this Torah, that you're going to live by while you're in the land. Why did God give his people this law? Because he didn't want them to have a good time? Why did he give them all this law? I mean, Leviticus, goodness, we got chapter upon chapter, of butchering instructions. What's the point of all that? To establish his name? Yeah, for one thing, he is establishing uh, his glory and he is telling his people how he is to be worshipped properly. Yet why else is he giving his people his law? This is sort of the summing up of why we've been doing this for the last year or so. So hopefully we all have some good ideas as to why God might have been doing this. So they can have what? So they can have... He's teaching them how to live. I mean, these are people who were in slavery for 400 plus years, right? Right? They can barely tie their own shoes. He's telling them how they are going to live. He is enabling them to construct a society that is going to be just and that's going to flourish, right? So he's telling them how to live. Why else has he given him, them his law? Well, that could be too. There could be that he's giving them his, his law so that he will show them how, how to live and also demonstrate uh, by their trying to live it out that they're not going to be able to completely. That could be part of it. Why else? Yes, Norm. Yeah, he, he's establishing a just society for the good of his people. He's not just telling them how to live because he wants to boss them around. I'm sure you don't have anybody in your lives that just sort of seems to arbitrarily want to tell other people what to do. Uh, and, and some people really have the image of God as this guy who sort of lies up at night wondering somebody worrying somebody, someplace is having a good time, right? That's not his deal at all. He's giving them his law so that they can live well in the land that he's giving them. He is giving them his law so that they can live with justice and with prosperity so they can have human flourishing, so that his people can live in a way that is joyful. He, he is giving them, for one thing, he gives them the Sabbath, right? One day a week where they're not working where all they're doing is worshiping and resting, right? He gives them multiple festivals and feasts that they're, uh, that they're to follow. In fact, uh, in this passage today, I'm going to take this down. In this passage today, uh, we find a specific instruction. This is toward the end of chapter 15. Get this. Uh, he, he says, uh, I'm sorry, uh, end of chapter 14. He says, so be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Right? Set aside a tenth. And here's why I want you to do that because I want to tax you. And I want to take away something that you feel is yours, and I want you to feel bad about it, and I want it to go away, and I want you to have nothing to do with it. Is that what he does? No. Take a tithe, take a tenth of your stuff, and eat the tithe of your grain, the new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herds and flocks, in the presence of Yahweh your God, that the place he will choose is a dwelling for his name, so that may you may learn to revere Yahweh your God always. I'm commanding you to take a tenth of your stuff and to have a gigantic party with it. And you know what? If that place, if you're too far away from what ultimately is going to be Jerusalem. And if you've been blessed by Yahweh your God, if you you have been blessed so much that you can't possibly haul a tenth of your stuff all the way to Jerusalem, then sell it. Take that money and then go to Jerusalem and then cash that in and buy, what does he say? Whatever you like. Buy cattle, sheep, wine, other fermented drink, or anything you wish. And you and your household shall eat there in the presence of Yahweh your God, and solemnly discuss the weightier matters of the law. No! Rejoice! And by the way, don't neglect the Levites living in your towns. They don't have any allotment or inheritance of their own. So God's people are called to take a tenth of their stuff and throw a gigantic party and make sure you invite the pastor. This to me sounds like a good time. I could be missing out. Maybe it's just because I'm the pastor. God is calling his people to live and to live well in the land that he is giving them. And and in order for that to happen, as you remember, he says, look, I am going to fight for you. You're going to go up against nations that are stronger than you. You're going to be outmatched and you're going to win because I'm going to fight for you. If you are faithful, if you follow me this is all going to go riotously well for you. On the other hand, if you don't, then we're going to have some problems. And so one of the things we talked about when we looked at this a couple of weeks ago was the fact that this is given to a particular people at a particular time as they're about to enter a particular land and drive out particular other people that are in that land. And as you may recall... We are not those people, right? It has, has anybody named Moses told you that you need to drive out some Girgashites or Perizzites or Hivites? It hasn't happened to me. Has that happened to you? Has God promised you any real estate lately? No? Right? This is a promise given to a particular people at a particular time for a particular purpose. We are not those people. But we are a a people, we are a community that is in continuity with this tradition, with this people that is called to be God's people. And we read in the New Testament that all Scripture is given to us, all Scripture is profitable, it's all God-breathed, and it's useful for all sorts of things, instruction, correction, training in righteousness. And when Paul wrote that, when he said all Scripture, he meant Torah, Torah and the writings, and the prophets. So this is useful to us for some reason. Somehow this is good for us to look at. This is one of the reasons we've spent a year looking at this stuff. But when we read this, we always have to remember that we are transposing what was written then into a different key. We're taking the commands that were given to one people, and we can't just sort of take them and apply them directly in the lives that we're living today, right? For one thing, you'd spend a lot of time hunting down some parasites so you could drive them out. I can't drive them, I don't even know where they are, right? We have to transpose this, and it is not necessarily an easy thing to do. There is a lot of argument always has been, about exactly how we make sense of these. Let me just take, by way of example, sort of as an exercise, let's look at how we might handle chapter 15 of Deuteronomy, one of my favorite passages in all of Torah. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Right? Remember we talked about that before. Right? This is God, God repeats himself because people aren't always paying attention. At the end of sev- every seven years, you must cancel debts. And this is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he's made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother because Yahweh's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. Now, you may require payment from a foreigner. If you're a foreigner, you don't get your debts canceled every seven years. But if you're an Israelite, you do. You've got to cancel any debt that your brother owes you. Now there shall be no poor among you, for in the land Yahweh your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, He will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Yahweh your God and are careful to obey the. uh, I'm sorry. If if only you fully obey uh, Yahweh your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today, for Yahweh your God will bless you as He's promised, and you will lend to many nations, but you'll borrow from none. You'll rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. So if there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed. Freely lend him whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought, Well, the seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near so that you don't show ill will toward your needy brother and give him nothing. He may then appeal to Yahweh against you, and you'll be found guilty of sin. Give generously to him. Do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, Yahweh your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land." Now, at first, this may seem a little confusing, right? God says, There shall be no poor among you and in verse 4. And then in 11, there will always be poor people in the land. Is God schizophrenic? Is he confused? No. That is, <laughs> no is the correct answer. No. He's saying, Look, there are always going to be people for whatever reason, whether because of bad luck, because of their own fault, because they've been harmed by somebody else, there always are going to be people who fall in hard times. And what are we to do as a community when people fall on hard times? We take care of them. And how specifically does he tell his people to take care of them? What are they supposed to do for them? supposed to lend them what they need, right? And lend them at no interest, knowing that it's possible that this loan might turn into what? A gift. Because if it is the seventh year and you loan somebody money, there's a pretty good chance you're not going to get it back before the year for canceling debts comes, right? It's six year. You, you might not get it. That loan may turn into a gift. And so God, of course, doesn't know anything about people or how they feel about money or the attitudes they might have, Right? No, I, he, I, I don't know how much clearer he could make it. If there is somebody among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted. Don't be tight-fisted toward your poor brother, but instead be open-handed. Freely lend him whatever he needs. Be careful beyond this. God's already saying don't be hard-hearted. Don't be tight-fisted. And what's more, don't go thinking, you know, that seven years coming up so that you're hostile toward him. So you're like, yeah, great, he's coming, he wants a loan. Because you know what? Get this. If you show ill will toward your needy brother and you give him nothing, he may appeal to Yahweh against you and you will be found guilty of sin. All right? If you have the means to help somebody, God says, and you don't because you're too cheap, because you're too stingy, because you don't think he's going to pay it back, you are guilty of sin. So give generously and do so without a grudging heart because of this, Yahweh your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Give generously without a grudging heart. Jesus talks about this in, 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 in uh, the Sermon on the Mount in, uh, in chapter 6. Where he says, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. And that, if your eye is bad, can uh, be understood. I mean, the connotation there of somebody who had an evil eye is that somebody was stingy, that somebody was ungenerous. And the the idea of an eye being good could imply that that person was generous. And, And I think that's what Jesus is referring to here because the next thing he says is no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one. Despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. So if you're serving God, you need to have an attitude toward your material resources that, for one thing, they're really not yours anyway, they're God's, and you're given responsibility to steward them temporarily, but that you are to be open-handed rather than tight-fisted, that you're to be generous rather than stingy, and that you are not only are you to, to give, but you're to give without a grudging heart. To take care of the people who are in need and then there are going to be situations coming up in this next passage where a person is not even going to take a loan from you basically they're going to become your indentured servant they're not able to take care of themselves they're going to need you to take care of them basically to adopt them and put them to work so if a fellow hebrew a man or a woman sells himself to you and serves you six years in the seventh year you must let him go free so this is not going to be a permanent arrangement when you release him, don't send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, your wine press. Give to him as Yahweh your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and Yahweh your God redeemed you. And this is why I give you this command today. but you know, if he says to you, "I don't want to leave," this is a good this is working for me. I'm happy to be your servant. Th- this will work. If he loves you and your family, if he's well off with you, then take an all, push it through his earlobe into the door, and he'll become your servant for life. The same thing for your maidservant. But don't consider it a hardship to set your servant free, because his service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand. And Yahweh, your God, will bless you in everything you do. That's a promise undergirding all of this, isn't it, Right? God is saying, I am commanding you to be generous. I'm commanding you to be gracious. I am commanding you to look out for the needs of others because I'm looking out for your needs. And if you don't trust that I can do that, you're going to have a really hard time being that generous, aren't you? Right? If you don't trust that God is going to provide for you, you're going to have a hard time helping somebody else who's in need. This may be completely alien to anybody here, But, yeah, it can be hard when somebody has a need and you want to respond, but you're like, oh, jeez. God's saying, look, I'm taking care of you. And so where this applies directly, I think, for us is we see this happening in our community all the time. And I probably see more of it than some of you because... Some of this happens in discreet and uh, uh, private ways. But people who are in need are taken care of by people who have means. God says, look, I don't want there to be any poor people, but I know there are going to be people who have needs. So here's what we do. When there are people who have needs, those needs get met by people who have the ability to meet them. That way, no longer is anybody poor. This happens all the time. It happens informally and it happens formally. And it happens not just, by the way, with material needs. It helps when people will take kids for a little while or if you've had uh, your power out for a long time and you need a shower. That's a community service when you open up your home to somebody to come in and take a shower. Those of us who have something to give, we give so that those who are in need are no longer in need. And where this can also get interesting and where it gets more controversial has to do with questions of what is what this means for us as a society. Obviously, our country, as we discussed, is not one that is in covenant relationship with the God of Israel. He did not, contrary to what some of the Puritans thought, he did not declare that this land of the United States, we now know as the United States, was going to be land specifically designated for us, where we were supposed to live according to Torah. You find especially in New England towns like New Canaan, founded by people who thought that was the deal, but it was not the deal. But at the same time, I think many of us would say, yeah, the idea that there shouldn't be anybody who is needy, that there shouldn't be anybody who's not able to feed their family, not able to find a place to sleep at night, We'd like to see that happen. So how do you make that happen? Do you make that happen by generously giving of somebody else's things, as you have on the cover of the bulletin in that uh, cartoon? Do you have it by giving generously yourself? Are the expectations that the person who receives aid be involved in labor of some sort? Is there an understanding that there are going to be some people who are going to work for others and that there are other people who are going to have people working for them and that's just the nature of human labor? Is the understanding that as we saw in the commands in Exodus, that everybody gives something, you remember that with the, at the, uh, the, the installation of the, the tabernacle where everybody was assessed, the, the half shekel tax, the temple tax. Everybody, the greatest to the least, everybody gave the same thing. Everybody gave the same thing. Poor, rich, everybody gave the same. Because everybody, the rabbis say, is equal before God. And that money is to supply the service of the temple. On other things, those who have more give more, and those who have less give less. But everybody is to come, is to bring something. And I wonder, and again, I tread here on ground that I don't often tread on, but I think this may be relevant when we look at a situation where nearly half of the citizens of the United States are not paying income tax. We joke that people like Kevin are our tax dollars at work, but... If you're not paying any income tax, I'm not talking about getting a refund because more was withheld than you actually owed. I'm talking about if you actually get a credit, if you have a refundable credit, if you are not paying tax, income tax to the, to the federal government, then you're not paying Kevin's salary. Only half of the people in the country pay Kevin's salary as a federal employee. Now You pay your gas tax, you pay your highway tax, you pay sales taxes, taking care of all sorts of state and local functions. But I wonder if that says about us as a society that we are expecting half of the people to be understood as needy and requiring assistance from the other half? I raise the question. And one of the things that I think is going to be useful for us, especially as we are in this election season and these policy issues are before us, is that we're going to have efforts like the one that Chris and Debbie are doing to uh, raise these questions of, of justice Is it just for half of the country to not have to pay for the military? That's a a question worth asking. Those are the kinds of questions they'll be working through. There's a a book that I had the privilege of being part of called Healing for a Broken World that's ideal for house churches to go through. And this is in the library. You may want to consider doing this. It's got video with it for those of you who like that. But the, the privilege of all this is that we get to work through this in community. We get to study these texts and wrestle with them together. We get to consider together what they mean for us in light of what God has accomplished in Christ, what it means for us as part of a community that's in continuity with the community of Israel, but also in sharp discontinuity in places. This is the privilege we have of doing that together, and I'm grateful that we are a body uh, that has established The kinds of relationships, and I think the kind of environment where people can ask these questions. And people can think through them well, think through them charitably with one another. I think this is a great place to be working through these questions if you're so inclined. So I know I look forward to doing that as we go through this cycle one more time. And we are, of course, not just doing this alone, we are in fellowship with our brothers and sisters around the world. Indeed, throughout all of the history of the church, for 2,000 years, Christ's followers have been working through these kinds of questions. So as we prepare to take communion, I invite you to stand and recite with me the words of the Nicene Creed that we recite along with the faithful churches throughout the ages, stating what we believe about our Lord Jesus, about our God the Father, about God the Holy Spirit We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. I invite you to come forward and take the elements from uh, Rick and uh, Chris. And bring them back to your seat and we'll take them together.